0: To do this right, you really want to look at a few things. One is, when is the likely time that you're going to want to retire, for example? I mean, obviously there's contingency things that you want to put in place in case of death the disability, but in a planned transfer and retirement, when do you want to do that? And what do you need to get in place? Do you have the right people already internally to be able to successfully do an internal succession deal? Not only to get the deal done, but who can successfully run the company so that you get your money? you're back in money. Not to mention the fact that you probably want the company you've created, the clients to be well handled and your legacy to be preserved and, you know, and things like that. Do you want your business to grow faster? Are you open to new and out of the box ways to drive revenues and increase value? How do you imagine the most successful entrepreneurs and business leaders double, triple, or expand their businesses tenfold or more? The answer is deals. This is a weekly podcast featuring conversations with business owners, executives, and leaders, as we reveal behind the scenes details that give you, our listeners, the confidence to pursue your own deal-driven growth. On the show, we discuss a huge variety of deals, everything from large complex mergers and acquisitions, to smaller deals that you can do even without significant capital. My name is Corey Kupfer, and I've been supporting deal-driven growth for businesses for 35 years. As a successful entrepreneur, professional negotiator, and attorney. My goal is to help you strategize, plan for, find, and complete deals that will help your company grow faster. Welcome to the Deal Quest podcast. Let's get started. Hello, Deal Quest listeners. This is another solo cast where we're going to do a deep dive into a certain type of deal. And this deep dive is going to be on a deal that we refer to as an internal succession deal. And I'm going to talk a little bit about what I call internal succession planning. And then we're going to talk about, you know, the deal structures and and some of the aspects of a deal for this. I mentioned this when um, two solo casts ago, I think it was uh, episode 80 of the podcast, where I talked about team in episode 80. And I mentioned the fact that one of the advantages of building a great team and empowering them and creating the right people and you know, uh, having flexibility and respecting them and drawing them from a bigger pool, whatever, is that not only do you create a freedom for yourself to do other kind of deals and you also create a company that's less dependent upon you, which can be great for, for building enterprise value to getting a better exit deal, which a lot of people think of in terms of a deal sale to another company, but it also creates a better option for an internal succession deal and creates a pool of potential buyers for the key people that you've built on this team, who have grown this great team and empowered them, and had you know a great people, well, they're a potential option for you to buy. So, what is an internal succession deal? So, an internal succession deal is just really a, an opportunity to sell your company to your existing team, to your people, to your key executives. And I'm not talking about an ESOP here. Let me make a distinction, right? People have termed ESOP employee stock ownership plan, which, frankly, for most entrepreneurial and growing companies, is not a good option. Bigger companies, it is. They're often ERISA qualified, complex plans, that kind of stuff. This is not what I'm talking about here. I'm just talking about when you have a company where you might have one or two or three or four or five, you know, a handful of employees, key executives, people who have been with you for a while who are helping to run the company. And frankly, if you've really gotten into a place where you're working on, your business not in it, you know, they're running it day to day successfully without you. They become potential buyers for the company, especially if they have a longer runway than you are, right? Likely younger than you, but age isn't really the factor. The biggest factor is that they have a longer time period that they're planning on working than you are. So, so they become an option for you uh, to buy the company. Let's talk about the advantages and disadvantages of an internal succession deal versus an external succession deal to start with. One of the advantages is that they know the company, right? the need to do due diligence, depending upon, of course, how much transparency they've had into certain things like financials and things like that. I mean, I'm not saying there's no due diligence on the part of internal buyers, but they know the culture of the company, they know the clients, they know the people, they know at some level how well the company is doing, whether you, depending on, you know, again, the transparency into financials, they may know a lot, they may know a little, but, you know, but in general, they're there, they're comfortable, they're getting paid, they know the company's doing well. They know, they know it's growing. They know there are clients. They know who their teammates are. They know most things about the company. And so the due diligence level, the finding not only in terms of time, but in terms of things they might be worried about is probably a lot less. Now, they also know your skeletons, by the way, more than an outside buyer would, So that could theoretically be a negative. But you know what? If you built the right kind of company with the right kind of team and you do great work for people, those skeletons aren't going to be anything significant and it's not going to stop a deal, and hopefully you don't have any or many or anything significant. So that's a big advantage, right? Know the company, less due diligence, they're comfortable. You know, you don't have to sell them on that. The other advantage is continuity. Certainly, if you're in any kind of service business or, and listen, even in product businesses, right, relationships matter in business, period. You know, unless you're, you know, a tech company where nobody ever speaks to a human you know, maybe it's a little less uh a little less here, but in most businesses, the continuity of the team, the continuity of people, especially when clients, customers hear that there's a sale and that the founder might be leaving, you know, and by the way, you can do these deals abruptly, but you could also very often do them over time, where there's a you know, it's not, not as abrupt to the market and to the clients. But the point is if the team is staying on, there's much less chance of there being disruption in the client relationships in the customer relationships, you know, there'll be much less chance that somebody's going to relook at their relationship with your company and say, oh, you know, Corey's leaving. Maybe we should rebid this contract. Maybe we should put it an RFP. Maybe we should just consider competitors or alternatives or, you know, just relook at things because they're, you know, they're selling to somebody new. If the team is staying around, especially if they're the ones who have been, you know, servicing the clients and maybe are close to the clients than you are at that point, if you've built a company that's less dependent upon you, then it you know is a great you know easy transition. The other thing is, although this is not always the case, almost every deal. I mean, when I said was ever the far, far majority of deals are done as asset sales, not equity sales, not stock or or membership interest in LLC, because of uh, uh, the buyer doesn't want to take on a liability risk. And that's certainly true with external sales. And almost always it's going to be an asset sale to an external buyer, unless you happen to be a C corporation that has, for example, NOLs, net, net operating loss carry forwards that are valuable or, you know, there's some other issue. Well, very often that is also the structure for a internal succession, but there's more often the case where you might be able to do it as an equity sale, because again, if employees have been there for, you know, 10 or 15 or 20 years or five, you know, long enough where they're comfortable that there aren't skeletons in the closet and the liability risk is low, they might be more willing to be a buyer of an equity uh, sale. and that could be advantageous to the sale. Now, there is different tax treatment. You got to look at that, especially if it's a family situation where you can't take a step up in basis through a certain tax election. I won't delve into the tax details in that, but asterisk tax thoughts, right? And again, right, I'm not your lawyer. I am a lawyer. This isn't legal advice. Get your own legal advice. Happy to help you if you need us. We'll go to your own lawyer. The point is that you know, absent the structuring and tax issues, which you can often work through, especially in a non family situation, it's often smoother to do a, an equity sale because when you do an asset sale, every contract needs to be assigned to the new entity. And most contracts don't, you know, have restrictions on assignment or at least consent requirements to get it assigned. And when there's a new buyer that's buying the assets, uh, whether it's leases, equipment leases, client agreements, you name it, you know, any contract you have, any type, you probably have to deal with assignment issues. Now, because you do it as an equity sale, a stock sale, a membership interest sale, whatever it is, on the equity side, it doesn't mean that you will not have some consent requirements or a change of control requirements because some assignment clauses. See, an assignment means that it's being assigned from one company to another, but some provisions also cover a change of control, which would effectively treat. You know, raise the same issues as an assignment. So, if the contract says if there's a change of majority control of the company, you need our consent to uh, have the contract continue, right? Or that it's restricted outright, then you might still have the same issues. But it's surprising, actually, how many agreements have no assignment provisions but do not have change of control restrictions. So, it may cut down on the uh, number of contracts you have to deal with. Also, if you do an equity sale, you can keep things like payroll and benefits because it's the same company. It's the same. Uh, you know, a company that's uh, staying in place just for ownership, all of those things stay, uh, you know, in place from before. Whereas on an asset sale, you often have to deal with all of those, you know, the payroll company and the benefits company and the health insurance and all that stuff. And by the way, all of that's doable, totally doable. The far majority of deals are asset sales, it all gets done. But there are some reasons why you might want to do a stock or equity sale. And although it's still the minority of, far minority of deals, even in an internal succession, it's a little more likely that that is at least on the table than in an external succession situation where they don't. Where they they're definitely not going to want to take on the liabilities, absent some you know unusual reason to do that. Those are some of the advantages. Also, another advantage for an internal succession, and this goes into the planning concept, is the ability to incentivize, attract, retain key talent because if they know that they're going to be buyers of the company, then it's, you know, that's a perk, that's an incentive for them to stay. And, you know, you may not for key people be able to pay them, you know, maybe they're getting better pay offers from bigger companies. But if they know that they're going to be able to have an ownership when you retire, or by the way, very often, because, you know, these deals can be done a few ways, you can set it up where you have an agreement now where they take over ownership with as a buy sell essentially where they, they're going to buy it when you're gone. But you can also build that into sort of a partnership track or an ownership track where they get equity over time, small percentage to start building over time. And they even buy, you know, they buy you out over time, where eventually they get majority or total control of the company or 100% ownership of the equity, but it's done over a period of time. But either way, you know, that becomes an incentive for key talent to stay even maybe if they are being offered better compensation or benefits from a bigger company. So that's another advantage to put that in place in advance, and this is where the planning comes in, right? Because if you wait until you're, you know, 6 months away from retirement, then the first of all, you haven't gotten any of the attraction uh, retention incentive benefits with your employees, you know, unless you've just made a promise to them; it's going to happen. They trust you, but you know it's much better to have for those incentive benefits to have them have a legal agreement in which they're they're guaranteed for that to happen. But also, you know, you limit your options because the chances of getting any deal done, external or internal, if you wait too late, are small. And on the internal side, especially, unless you want to own a finance it, and this brings up you know the next interesting topic: if you want them to uh, be able to borrow money. To be able to fund the buyout, their ability to do that is much more likely if you're buying out over time than if it's all at once. Plus, they need time to get that financing in place, right? So you want to plan in advance to be able to have them be able to do that, you know, and having them buy it over time with, you know, maybe a small loan to start with, and then you know, as they get more equity, they they borrow more money. That makes sense. Now, that is one of the downsides, by the way. It depends upon industry of an internal succession. In some industries there's not a lot of uh, money available, you know, for people who may not have their own balance sheet, right, significant assets of their own to back up lending. And then in some industries, this used to be true in the investment advisor space up until, you know, maybe about seven, eight years ago, where there were very limited funding options in the space. And what would happen is a lot of times the internal buyers, uh, the employees, would want the owner to basically take a note, right? You know, to self-fund, the uh, finance, the buyout. And a lot of times the seller, the you know, the founder would say, think to themselves, well, why am I going to do that? I mean, basically, if I'm going to get paid over time, I might as well just keep owning the thing and I'll keep taking my cash out and I just won't work as much. And so that was often a uh, a deterrent to an internal succession deal to a sale because of that. Now, for example, in the investment advisor space, there's become a, a lot of uh, financing options that there never used to be. And in various other industries, there's certainly financing options uh, because the buyer is now, you know, the employee group, right, is not only relying upon their own credit, but they are able to have the value of the company, the equity, right, the cash flow of the company, the receivables, all that stuff, any hard assets if they're in manufacturing or other business where they have hard assets become collateral for the loan as well. So if you plan further in advance, there's more chances in certain industries of having funding available outside funding for the uh, executives uh, and employees who want to be the buyers so that you as a founder, as a seller, if you're on that side, could get either all or at least a larger percentage of your money at a closing up front because they're able to finance that deal. So that's an advantage. Let's take a break from the show for a minute so I can invite you to join our DealQuest community group on Facebook. There, you'll have a chance to engage with other entrepreneurs, business owners, executives, and leaders who are looking to grow, do deals, and make a bigger impact. In addition to the great content and community, you can also register there for our Conversations, Community, and Cocktail Zoom calls and the upcoming Deal Den Zoom calls during which you will have the opportunity to brainstorm and get support with deal-driven growth for your company. Now back to the show. Let's talk about a couple of the negatives. Often, although now that financing, you know, in industries where financing is in place, it's cut the gap, but because you are limiting your, you know, uh, your sale to an internal succession, unless you're going to compare it to external options, you can potentially do that. But often there's some some discount, some haircut on the price because the deal is easier to get done. It goes to people you trust. More well, likely, you're going to get paid. All that kind of stuff. A lot of times, the valuation that you give internal buyers is going to be lower. It could be a little lower. It could be you know somewhat lower. I mean, it's not going to be fifty percent or something. You know, but it could be ninety. It could be eighty percent. Could be you know. There's usually some haircut on the valuation for internal buyers. Not always, but often. You know, and because external buyers, you know, might have just much more resources, much more cash, much more funding, but they also might have other strategic reasons why it makes sense for them to buy your company, which makes your company more valuable to them than it is is a standalone that will have them offer a lot more money. The classic case of that is, you know, at sometimes an extreme is when a roll-up company or an acquisition company comes into your space and they're paying much higher multiples than your individual company is worth because they're going to roll up all these companies and go public or sell them at at even a much higher multiple. But even when that doesn't happen, when you have external buyers, they'll often be strategic and other reasons, including access to capital reasons that they may pay a little more. You know, you could be taking a discount in an internal sale. Now let's talk a little bit about uh, how these things are, you know, are often structured. So again, you could set it up where people are buying in over time, 5% 5% a year, you know, whatever the numbers are, obviously it depends upon how many people are in the buying group. If there are going to be multiple people buying, you're going to be bringing them in or, or anybody buying, you know, and, and you're still an owner. In other words, they're not just buying hundred percent from you upon your retirement or death. You're going to need to bring them into a shows agreement or operating agreement, which we talked about on the on the last solo cast on, I think it was episode 84, where we talked about like business partnership and some of the terms around those kind of agreements. So you'll you know, you'll need to deal with that. If it's a hundred percent buyout, you don't need to deal with that. But you'll need to deal with things like, okay, how much are you getting up front, how much is paid over time. And that's the other thing that happens sometimes for any portion that's owner financed is sometimes it'll be payable over a longer period of time than the back end money that you would get on an external deal, again for cash flow purposes. The other thing that often comes up is when you're allowing employees to buy in over time, very frequently the founder does not want to be in a position where they still have ownership. But it becomes a minority ownership interest, at least not in terms of voting control. Sometimes you'll structure it where they can keep buying, and you end up with you know uh, under fifty percent of the equity over time, but you still control decisions. This is not universal, but most owners don't like the idea of you know like many of them at least when they get to the point where they're going to lose control of the decision making in the company, they often want to be out totally. So sometimes you'll see, or you know, uh, relatively often, not all the time, you'll see structures where people are buying in and uh, now they have 5%, 10%, 20%, 30%, up to 49%. And then the next block is basically you go, they go from 49% to 100%, right? They're going to buy the other 51% at the point where the founder owners are ready to, you know, retire or or pass away or whatever, where they want out or, uh, you know, out because of circumstances. You know, that's something to think about on if you are a founder owner, whether you're willing to be in a structure where you do have a minority ownership interest. And again, you could divide voting and, 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 uh, and economics. So even if you own 5%, you could theoretically still control the voting by contract. But you know, do you want to be in that position where you lose voting control at some point, but still have ownership? Or do you want to structure it where you have voting control until your last ownership is paid? Or do you want to, you know, or, or bought? Or do you want to structure it where you know, the minute it goes above 50%, you're going to sell out everything? So those are some things to think about in terms of the uh, structure on, on buyouts over time with employees. The other things are, you know, what kind of security or guarantees are you going to get for any back-end payments? What is, you know, very, very common if you're doing uh, an asset sale is to have the assets you've sold, meaning the equipment, the hard assets, but also client lists, goodwill, that kind of stuff, name, be security for the back-end payments. So if the buyers, the employees don't pay you, you can foreclose, basically, you can take back the company. Now, in f- legal theory, that sounds nice, but in practicality, first of all, obviously, if you've died or become disabled, uh, you know, you're know you not in a position to take the company back and your family probably isn't either, except maybe to take it back to sell it to somebody who could run it and that's a disaster, a mess, and you're not gonna get a lot of value there. But even if you're just retired, most people don't wanna be in a position where they gotta come out every time and then back into their company. So although that's a standard Part of the security for back end payments, it is not something that's you know that really gives a lot of peace of mind or comfort because of the desire not to have to exercise it even if things go wrong. So one fundamental question comes up is: Are you going to get any other kind of security? Are you going to get any other kind of protection? Are people going to you know give you a second mortgage on their home or you know or have any other personal assets that they can that they can pledge? In many cases, they don't or don't want to. And then, you know, it comes into this interesting psychological thing of, hey, you know, sometimes frustration with founders, entrepreneurs, because employees want the best of both worlds, right? They don't want to take on that entrepreneurial risk, but they want the upside. So those negotiations happen a lot of times. But, you know, but sometimes they're just not in a position to do it, you know, or their spouse is like, no, you're not mortgaging the house. And you got to make a decision on whether you're comfortable with that. The good thing about an internal sale, although, again, you know, although, you know, there's no guarantee what happens in the future. And especially when you're out of there, but, you know, if you're selling to a management group or key executives who you've known for a long time, you can make that judgment on whether they're going to, one, be able to run the company successfully, because sometimes they, you know, they can't pay because things aren't going well, in which case, practically, what are you going to do? you Are going to put the company out of business? You know, you're probably going to figure out a way to work with them. If the economy's gone down or even if they've, you know, messed it up a little bit, because, you can insist assist on, I mean, they may not, if they don't have the money to pay you, what are you going to do about it? But you'll also be able to make the judgment of that they're not the kind of people hopefully are going to, you know, defraud you or screw you or be able to pay you and just not pay you. And you do have that. And that's why the, the you know, the uh, the lean on the assets of the company, even though you don't want to exercise it, does give you some leverage if somebody is being stupid or, you know, or immoral or breaching the contract. So, you know, but that is a concern. Whereas if you have an outside buyer, especially a bigger company that's well-funded, you know, the collectability or the ability to, um, you know, get your money on the back end is probably higher. At the same time, by the way, if they turn out to be bad actors, they're a bigger gorilla to go fight against. So that's a negative to an outside deal versus an inside deal. You know, you have more leverage probably on individual executives than you do on a big buyer who may throw their weight around and claim, for example, that there were breaches of representations and warranties, and therefore, you know, they, they don't have to pay a back end purchase price. So it cuts both ways. So how much money you get up front, how much money you get on the back end, how much it's gonna be secured. You wanna actually deal with well, what happens if they sell the company at some point. Usually you're gonna want an acceleration of your purchase price, right? So even if it was paid over five years, if they sell it in year two, you you're gonna want the right to get paid in full as a condition of that sale. So, you know, there's some provisions like that. And then, you know, there'll be a question as, uh, as to whether you're going to be out totally at the point that they buy you out, or, you know, maybe you have some ongoing employment role or a referral arrangement or consulting arrangement. So, that you know, that's that's all. And then you get into a, the whole question about valuation in terms of, you know, what they have to pay. And we talked a little bit about, uh, you know, outside valuation in past, uh, you know, versus uh, some sort of formula and, you know, in past uh, solo cast. So I won't get into detail there. But the last thing I really want to talk about is less the deal structure, but the planning part of it. To do this right, you really want to look at a few things. One is when is the likely time that you're going to want to retire. For example, I mean, obviously there's contingency things that you want to put in place in case of death, disability, but in a planned transfer and retirement, when do you want to do that, and what do you need to get in place? Do you have the right people already internally? to be able to successfully do an internal succession deal not only to get the deal done but who can successfully run the company so that you get your money your back in money not to mention the fact that you probably want the company you've created the clients to be well handled and your legacy to be preserved and you know and things like that so you know what is your plan do you want to just work like you know the full time and then and then retire totally and be out do you want to wind down over time and we need, and you want a structure to uh, allow for that do you want to allow this partnership or ownership track where you're going to bring people in slowly to you know sort of incentivize them and keep them there and and have them be more vested in the success of the company even while while you still own it if you have multiple owners i mean i remember you know we had a five owner founder company where we did a whole survey so so one of the things we do in addition to the legal work on it is we do succession planning for companies on a consulting basis and you know, we did individual interviews with each of the five partners because they all had uh, founders, because they all had different timelines and different views and different objectives. And then, you know, we, we took that and put it into a matrix and try to figure out if somebody is planning on working, you know, uh, dying with their boots on, quote unquote, and someone else wants to retire in two years and someone else wants to retire in five years and, so, you know, and different people have different views on who should take over you know, or what their equity is worth, or there's a million factors. So obviously it gets exponential when you have multiple owners. There's a whole planning and consulting process that's necessary to figure out everybody's objectives. And not only of the founders, but also of the buyers of the next gen, right? Who are going to buy in the executives, the employees, what are their objectives? Are they looking to be there for you know, the long term? Are some of them looking to buy this and then sell it and, you know, make a lot of money? Those objectives have to get aligned. And then all the founders' objectives have to get aligned. Then timelines have to uh, come up. And then the relationship of when somebody is going to retire and leave in that founding group in relation to how quickly the next-gen people want to gather equity has to be tied out. So there's a lot of planning, consulting, and thinking uh, that goes into this that we do for clients on a, you know, on a uh, consulting basis, especially when there are multiple owners. And you definitely you know, want to think those things through, which is another reason why starting further in advance. Really makes a difference because you have many, many, many more options when you do that. So listen, folks, you know, internal succession, if you've built the right team first, obviously if you don't have the right people in place, you're in trouble for that, which is again, if you're doing this in advance, you might say, wait a second, I need to bring in some key folks to get to have an internal succession solution. So let me do that. That's the first part of the planning process, is I need to hire one or two more people, have them be here for a few years, and then it'll round out the team. A potential bias. who can successfully buy this company and run it when I'm gone. So that kind of, you know, hiring and planning makes a difference. And, you know, going back to episode 80, where I talked about building the key uh, team for the purposes of just, you know, success and growth in general, and then doing other kind of deals also obviously creates this opportunity to do a successful internal succession deal. And then we figure out, hey, we'll keep these people around and incentivize them. Do we give them equity over time? Do they have to buy in? Do we give them a discount on that valuation because of what they've done for us so far? Or maybe we've paid them well, so there shouldn't be any discount because they got paid for their services, but they'll buy in at fair market value, but maybe we'll self-finance it. There's all those kind of decisions that we do in the planning process. And then we, of course, document and, and structure those deals for clients. So I hope this is helpful for those of you who uh, either have key people who could be an an internal succession solution for you or have a runway where you think you can build that. And it should at least be on the menu of things that you're considering. And listen, frankly, that's true even if you end up going with an external sale. You know, why not have more options uh, even if you're gonna look at both? But at some point, and it may be well in advance of, uh, you know, when you can ultimately sell everything, you may start making decisions that move in a different in a certain direction, like selling equity to small pieces to people over time. But doing that doesn't necessarily prevent an external sale. Depending on what your agreements say, you can even set up an internal succession agreement that says it'll go into place unless there's been an external sale before that. So you don't have to lock yourself into it, even if you started down that route. So those are some thoughts on internal succession deals, a little deep dive there. And like I said, um, in some of the past episodes, we'll be doing deep dives and some of these other types of deals as we go down the line. I hope you uh, enjoyed that. Of course, reach out if you have any questions about deep dive on internal succession planning or succession deals, and we will get come back to you next week with a new interview podcast and then look out for our next solo cast four weeks from today. Take care. Thank you for joining me on this episode of DealQuest, where we help you understand how deal-driven growth can be your ticket to freedom. You can be a friend of the show by leaving a review on the Good Pods app, podchaser.com, or any major podcast player. Every review helps the show reach more listeners. If you're ready to take your deal-making to the next level by becoming a master negotiator, head over to Amazon or Audible and grab a copy of my best-selling book, Authentic Negotiating. Then connect with me on LinkedIn and let me know your thoughts. I'm Corey Kupfer. Until next week, wishing you the freedom and financial prosperity that I know your deal quest will bring.